Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Hamilton's Housing and Homelessness Initiative explained. Plus, Premier Ford wants to get it done. A new COVID study supporting Ukraine, laughing with Sean Majumder, and Lego is making a comeback. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Last week, Hamilton Council passed the city's 2024 budget. We had numerous guests on the show who broke down how everything in that document added up to our 5.79% tax increase. We spoke with Hamilton's mayor, some councillors on this. 2.55% is from provincial government downloading, a number we just can't control. 1.64% is to pay for city services. 1.6% is for investments in housing and homelessness. So I thought it was an appropriate time to get a sense of what is being spent on housing and homelessness and how that investment is going to make a difference, not only in 2024, but beyond as well. And here to help us out is Michelle Baird, the Director of Housing with the City of Hamilton, who joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Michelle, welcome back to the show. How are you? Good morning. It's great to be back. How much money is 1.6%? What's the total that we're looking at? So 1.6% of the budget is $158 million, and that money is being invested to increase housing and reduce homelessness across the city. So can you give us examples of how we're going to achieve that? Yes. So as you know, the city declared a homelessness crisis in 2023. So the strategies here really are to address that crisis, investments, You'll see things such as, of course, um, construction of new affordable housing overall, as well as investment in shelter spaces. Uh, An important piece is rehabilitation and maintenance of existing affordable housing. So a lot of the affordable housing, social housing stock in the city, certainly it's it's older infrastructure. So investing in maintaining those affordable units. Uh, There are investments in tenant protection. So through whether it be the rent eviction bylaw or tenant support program, the more effectively we can keep people in the unit that they're in, it both allows people to remain housed, but also keeps affordable units within the system. There's also investments um, for local housing providers uh, in order to build again affordable housing and housing with supports. One of the pieces, of course, is that simply providing people um, a housing unit isn't the solution, but we need to ensure the supports are there to um, to see that people are able to stay housed. And then, of course, ongoing support for the encampment response team. As long as we have this homelessness crisis in the city, we will uh, see, unfortunately, that the encampments exist. So investment there as well. I'm going to make an educated guess that at $158 million is by far and away the most we've ever spent on an initiative like this. Uh, I believe that's correct. It's an investment. The increase is about 26% over last year. And again, uh, you know, the city at this point in time is actually spending more towards housing and homelessness than either other level of government. I was on the city website uh, the other day, and it says that the city's housing and homelessness action plan includes a systems planning framework, which, quote, sets a path forward to end chronic homelessness by 2025, which is 11 months away, is that achievable? So that's not achievable at this point in time. Certainly over the next year, uh, steps can be made, putting us on the right path, continuing to invest. But we, um, the homelessness crisis continues to grow, not just because of a lack of affordable housing, but we're seeing the impacts of affordability overall 
um, incomes are certainly not keeping pace. And so when that document was put together back in 2019, 2020, we were in a very different place than we are now, unfortunately. And so uh, we're not going to see an end to chronic homelessness at that point in time. However, we, we do, you know, know the strategies that we could implement to certainly make a difference and ultimately end chronic homelessness as we go forward. Is there a new target date down the road? There's no new target date as of yet. That uh, document will be updated uh, in 2024. So you'll see an updated housing and homelessness action plan going forward. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Michelle Baird, the Director of Housing with the City of Hamilton. We're talking about the city's housing and homelessness initiative, $158 million uh, in the budget to target uh, more affordable housing, to improve shelter spaces, uh, in, in, in On that latter point, are we going to see more shelter spaces added to the system, for lack of a better term? So right now we're using, we have funded shelter spaces that are ongoing. We also are using hotels uh, for families. Family homelessness continues to be a problem in the city. And we brought additional shelter spaces online uh, as part of our winter response. We are looking for ways that we can continue that investment in order to bring more shelter spaces online. Shelter spaces aren't just an emergency measure. I mean, certainly they are addressing an acute need, but it also brings people into the system, hopefully uh, connects people with services, and shelters overall do support people in finding and securing housing. So it's an important step on that housing continuum. So we are looking at ways to increase our our, um, shelter beds within the system. Is there a new nugget within the initiative or or a greater emphasis that will be put on a specific priority that could take us down the road to, to having less people living in tents? I think when we think about the strategies that are being funded through this budget, I would say there's a couple that, first of all, there is support for um, a supportive housing project, Dorothy Day Place. It's uh, it's a Good Shepherd project we've talked about, I think, on this show before, and that truly is supportive housing for 73 um, women, non-binary, gender-diverse individuals. And so that's a housing project that offers permanent housing for 73 of the most vulnerable people in our community, many of whom have come directly from homelessness, directly from encampments. The other piece is if we think about uh, all the work that's done around supporting tenants, uh, supporting uh, individuals so that they're not losing their, um, their, their leases through rent evictions and the such, that that particular piece of work, great effort by the city, lots of efforts put in there because we're seeing more and more that people are losing their apartments, their leases, and finding themselves homeless and at times finding themselves in encampments. And so really investing there to keep people housed, to provide them with the supports when they do find themselves in a place that they're being evicted or whatnot, that there are supports there to help them navigate through the system and and hopefully keep their house. And so I think that there are some strategies here that are upstream a bit and hoping to um, address the homelessness issue before we find people in encampments. Well, it's great to see the uh, the big investments. Uh, let's just hope that uh, many more people are assisted and get into more secure and affordable housing down the road. Michelle, we'll have to leave it there. So appreciative of your time this morning. Thanks for joining us. No problem. Thanks. Michelle Baird is the Director of Housing with the City of Hamilton. Coming up in just a few minutes. People know where I stand on the carbon tax. I'm queen of the people's heart. Dropping the gloves at Queen's Park. Our Queen's Park Bureau Chief Colin DeMello standing by to talk about day one at the provincial legislature and some fireworks at Queen's Park as well. 
You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. MPPs return to Queen's Park and the carbon tax was on the mind and the lips of many. People know where I stand on the carbon tax. I've opposed it from the very beginning. My record couldn't be more different than Bonnie Crombie's. She supported the carbon tax right from the start. Plus, what is Doug Ford's Get It Done Act all about? What is it promising to do? Colin DeMello is our Queen's Park Bureau Chief at Global News and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Colin, good morning. How are you? Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, So Doug Ford, we just heard it in the clip, calling out Bonnie Crombie for her support of the carbon tax. Uh, You chatted with her yesterday and she had an interesting quote uh, coming back with that uh, she's not really the queen of the carbon tax, but something else. Uh, tell us about the, uh, the the toe-to-toe or the head-to-head between Ford and Crombie. Yeah, so I, I think the progressive conservatives are really trying to corner Bonnie Crombie. They're really trying to kind of uh, paint an image of her to the public before she really gets the chance to define herself to the public, right? This is kind of the Stephen Harper federal conservative style of you know, frame your opponents before they have the chance to really frame themselves. And so that's why the the Ford government is trying to tie Bonnie Crombie in with the federal uh, liberals a carbon pricing scheme. And the reason why is because it's a deeply unpopular tax, as the Ford government calls it. Um, and, and he's been trying to get Bonnie Crombie to kind of really take a side on it, right? Is she on the side of environmentalists who might call for a price in carbon? Or is she on the side of everyday people who might be suffering under the price of carbon? So we, the Queens Park Press Gallery, really pinned down Bonnie Crombie yesterday. And she kind of refused to give an answer for a number of reasons. She says she hasn't yet consulted with her caucus or consulted with her uh, party about exactly what stance they should take. They don't have a platform yet. They don't have policies related to the price in carbon. So when I asked her very clearly, hey, you know, Bonnie Crombie, are you the queen of the carbon tax, as uh, Premier Doug Ford says? She responded by saying, no, she's actually the queen of people's hearts. (laughs) And, (laughs) And you should have seen a lot of our faces kind of just uh, we we all had these very confused looks in our face. And, and in the back of my head, I was thinking, I was like, isn't that what Princess Diana said? <laughs> and yes, I looked it up later and that's exactly what Princess Diana said. So I, I think she was trying to be uh, kind of cute in the moment. But at the uh, but what she later said was that her policy when it comes to carbon pricing wouldn't necessarily put an additional burden on taxpayers and everyday Ontarians, uh, hers would be more targeted, it seems like, towards the polluters, which is, you know, to be fair, exactly what the Ford government has brought in. The the Ford government has a carbon tax in place right now. It's just on the polluters and the emitters and not everyday, uh, uh, the everyday public. So you don't see the Ford government's carbon uh, pricing on the gas pumps, but emitters have to pay carbon prices. And those carbon prices are actually affixed to what the federal government has set out. So the Ford government and the Trudeau liberals are actually aligned when it comes to the price on carbon. It's just who it should apply to is where they're misaligned. The Ford government applies it to uh, the polluters and not people. Ford was also asked about uh, Bill 124 and whether or not he's going to apologize for it, the wage cap legislation. Uh, What happened at Queen's Park yesterday on this? Yeah, it's interesting. The Ford government does have a a history and the premier himself has a history of apologizing when they've kind of stepped a foot uh, over the line. Right. We saw it most recently with the Greenbelt scandal, which uh, in which the Ford uh, 
Premier Doug Ford had to apologize. But when it comes to Bill 124, he is refusing to give up an inch. It seems like the Premier still believes in the validity of Bill 124, even though two successive courts have told the government that they are wrong and the bill was unconstitutional. What we are still waiting for is when the government is going to table legislation to repeal Bill 124. The government indicated that they are not going to pursue this in the courts anymore, but they are going to repeal Bill 124 entirely as if it did not exist. And on top of that, they're going to introduce some regulations that means that unionized and non-unionized workers would be treated the same, that they would all be entitled to some kind of back pay. We have seen no measures in the legislature on the first day back related to Bill 124. And we've asked the Treasury Board, which would be in charge of this file. We've asked the government House Leader's Office. We've asked the Premier's Office. Nobody can tell us exactly when this repeal legislation will actually come. And there are no apologies from the government either. So for healthcare workers who might have felt slighted by the government by Bill 124, it doesn't seem like they are getting any kind of apology from the Premier about that law. We have 90 more seconds with Global News Queen's Park Bureau Chief Colin DeMello on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. We heard at nauseum over the last, I don't know, number of months, how Doug Ford and the progressive conservatives plan to build one and a half million homes over 10 years. When it comes to this Get It Done Act, is it in there? And did we hear anything about home building? So there was one little measure when it came to home building, and that really applies to the official plans and the urban boundaries of a whole host of municipalities. But remember, the Ford government is working on two timelines. The first, build 1.5 million homes by 2031, and then prepare to build a heck of a lot more homes by 2051 when Ontario's population is is set to grow uh, somewhere in to the, you know, the 25 or so million people from 15 million people where it's at now. So the government had opened up uh, the boundaries of a lot of municipalities in 2022. They got into trouble with the green belt. They reversed the official plan uh, changes to municipalities. And now after consulting with those municipalities, they've gotten the green light and the blessing. So now they've reopened acres of land for development. Um, they, they seem to have now done this in the correct way. They've got the municipalities on board and they are not necessarily going to land into a lot of hot water with this one. Uh, but in terms of building 1.5 million homes, yesterday's plan didn't really showcase anything in terms of what they're going to do. Although another housing action supply legislation is coming sometime in this session. And we don't know exactly what's in that just yet. Okay, looking forward to that. Colin, thanks for the time this morning. Enjoy the day. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Colin DeMello is Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News, and you can check out his uh, latest story on all the big happenings on day one at Queen's Park online at 900chml.com and globalnews.ca. Coming up, a Lego master, a Lego expert, is going to join us to talk about Lego's resurgence on GMH on 900C. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Really interesting story at McMaster University. We're trying to get hold of the lead author of the study. But it showed that when we closed schools during the COVID-19 pandemic, and let's not forget, Ontario was by far and away the province that closed schools for the longest. Well, apparently we goofed. So says this study from McMaster University in which researchers published their findings in the medical journal, The Lancet Child and Adolescent Health. And so it found that getting the vaccine, putting on a mask, which we all did, 
administering rapid tests did the trick when it came to ensuring schools and daycares didn't become a breeding ground for COVID. Dr. Sarah Neil Stramko is the lead author of the study, an assistant professor at McMaster University, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Sarah, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Thanks. How are you? I'm good. So how did you come to this conclusion that, yeah, we were masking up, we were getting vaccines, we were, you know, administering rapid tests, but when it came to schools and daycares, um, they didn't have to be closed for as long as they did. Yeah, so we, uh, this study that was published uh, last week is actually the culmination of about three years of work by our team, where we started in April and May of 2020, looking across um, all of the scientific studies that had been published around the world related to uh, COVID-19 in schools and daycares. Um, so our first report, we were relying on not a lot of information. Uh, we had we were relying on things from our past infectious diseases, um, from transmission in schools before the initial stay-at-home order was put in place. But as time went on, we continued to update that review. So 18 different times uh, from that initial report that we published in 2020 to our final report uh, that we finished at the end of April 2022, we were able to continue to look at all of the studies that have been published around the world. Uh, and come to a conclusion, sort of an overall conclusion uh, of what we were finding, rather than relying just on a single study. So, was so. there was there a point in gathering all that data when you figured out? Listen, we didn't, we probably didn't have to close schools at all. Yeah, the picture evolved over time. So we were able to start to integrate data um, from areas that reopened before we did, like Australia, who was on a different school schedule. Um, things did change over time as variants of concern became more prevalent. Uh, as vaccinations came into play. Um, but really, we did start to get that picture. Uh, and our findings were consistent, really, in those last few iterations of our review. Ontario schools, as we know, stayed closed longer than any other province. And that certainly had negative impacts on students, uh, really, of all ages. Absolutely. And and we, we did have that information at that, that time of that last school closure uh, to say that when infection prevention and control measures were in place, like vaccination and masking and test-to-stay policies, that it didn't appear... Um, based on the data that we had from within Canada and from around the world, that that school closures would have a huge impact on community transmission. I guess it's fair to say that officials at the time just didn't have all the answers and they were too cautious in keeping schools closed? Yeah, it's 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 uh, hard to say how those decisions were made. So as you said, Ontario uh, closed for a lot longer than anywhere else in the province. Um, and so, so decisions are, are made based on different information. And so the evidence that we had suggested that um, based on what we knew with the evidence at the time, that school closures weren't going to really uh, continue to minimize, to, to keep transmission at bay, that we could open schools um, relatively safely with those measures in place. That's not to say that transmission didn't happen in schools. Of course, we know that, that children and, and staff members within schools did, of course, contract COVID just like they did in many other uh, settings. But we know that when we when we look overall at jurisdictions that had uh, that mean that kept schools closed and jurisdictions that that were able to reopen with those measures in place, when we look at the sort of larger level of, of number of cases and number of serious cases and hospitalizations in the community, there wasn't a difference between those two groups. Dr. Sarah Neil Stramko is the lead author of this study, assistant professor at McMaster University, and her guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. We've been told since the start of this pandemic that, listen, there's going to be another one sometime down the road. If anything, this study, I would, I would think, is going to be good ammunition for the next time around. 
I hope so. And, and of course, how uh, applicable the findings are to the next time around will really depend on the virus the next time around. So we know that COVID-19 behaves a lot differently than other um, previous infectious diseases. So really, um, you know, we don't know how applicable these findings will be. What we do know is from, from this work is what studies were the most trustworthy for us that we were able to give us the best information. So we have a bit of a roadmap for what are the studies that we need to do to answer these questions for a novel virus that might come up? And how do we bring that information together and present it to decision makers in real time so that hopefully those decisions can be made based on the best available evidence uh, and that we can adapt and refine our recommendations as time goes on and new data become available. Was there data and, and studies that were just above the rest in terms of accuracy and, and uh, you know, the go forward plan would, would work? Yeah, absolutely. So when we look at uh, so different jurisdictions, there's statistical techniques that we can use for, to control for other differences between jurisdictions, for example. So when we look at um, areas that stayed open and areas that stayed closed, we know there were many other differences that were in those places. So things like mask uh, mandates in public places and, and gathering restrictions and whatnot. So there's statistical techniques that uh, researchers can use to account for some of those other differences. So that was an important thing to be considering. Um, when we looked at the, the um, transmission patterns within schools themselves, um, being able to follow students uh, over time and have continued surveillance of students within um, specific settings so that all cases were captured rather than just relying on um, kind of self-reported cases to researchers, which we know um, we would miss some that way. So there were a few a few different types of studies um, that we know were more trustworthy. Well, I know uh, hindsight's twenty twenty, but it would have had uh, would have been an amazing uh, accomplishment to have all this information before the, the the last pandemic. But we'll have it for the next time around. That is for sure. Dr. Sarah Neil Stramko, thank you so much for the time this morning. Yeah, thanks for having me. Dr. Neil Stramko is the lead author of the study. You can find it in the medical journal The Lancet Child and Adolescent Health. It's a pretty good read. Uh, Dr. Sarah, also an assistant prof at McMaster University. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. A lot of attention has been paid, and rightfully so, to the war in Gaza between Israeli forces and Hamas. There is another conflict that is still going on. And that is the one in Ukraine. And this coming Saturday will mark the two-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And to that end, the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress is planning a rally for Ukraine this coming Saturday. It's going to be held in the forecourt at Hamilton City Hall starting at 1 p.m. All the details and a whole lot more online at standwithukraine.org. And here to talk about it is Mary Halatik, the Vice President of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress Hamilton Branch. Mary, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm fine. How are you? I'm good. What is planned for Saturday? Well, um, well, basically a rally with a short program. We have uh, the Ukrainian community participating. Uh, all the uh, churches in the area, the <clears throat> the priests um, will be um, there. Uh, so we'll have a short um, prayer, and uh, we have a few uh, speakers from the uh, from the community as well. The uh, Latvian community, Lithuanian. Polish, Estonian, everyone will be um, have a, sh- a short message, and uh, um, there'll also be um, um, a children's component as well. The um, uh, the William Sarchik School from Saint Vladimir's Orthodox Cathedral uh, will be singing um, a, a song as well. So um, just basically 
to let the community know that this is still going on, that um, uh, the, the country as a whole uh, is still on alert. Uh, civilians are being um, shot at and bombed uh, every day. And it's just as horrific uh, today as it was a year ago, as it was two years ago. And um, it, it, it has to stop. I can't believe it's already been two years. I know. I know. How? And um, it, it it just doesn't look like it's going to stop. Yeah. Uh, and, and there's really, um, the reasoning for it is uh, archaic and uh, civilians shouldn't be dying for, for this. How um, is the local Ukrainian community holding up? Well, what can you do? You know, we, we try our best. Uh, there have been a lot of newcomers uh, from Ukraine who are fleeing the war um, coming here uh, to Hamilton. We've been very busy uh, helping with um, humanitarian aid uh, of any kind, you know, uh, looking for work, uh, for lodging, uh, all of that, that kind of thing. So we've been very busy with that. But it's it's now a, a time to turn our our uh, attention to try and help uh, you know our 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 families our brothers and sisters in Ukraine Mary Halanik is the vice president of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress Hamilton branch. They're holding a uh, rally for Ukraine this coming Saturday. It begins at 1 p.m. in the forecourt of Hamilton City Hall. All the details and a whole lot of other information online at standwithukraine.org. What do you make of Canada's response to this war? We've sent over weapons. You know, we we're sending over hundreds of drones was the latest announcement. Are we doing enough? Well, um, as a, as a, a country, I think... you. Canada has been very supportive, um, and uh, well, <laughs> what is enough, really? You know, <laughs> uh, I I don't know because um, you know we have to protect ourselves as well. Um, I I think Canada has been very supportive in in many ways, and and uh, the the drones, of course, uh, will help, um, but also um, you know helping with. Uh, uh, aid for for those fleeing here. We, they've been Canada has been very uh, welcoming and helpful, um, as well as uh, you know like um, uh, the the children that have been stolen. Um, uh, Melanie Jolie is uh, um, trying her best to work uh, to get those children back, um, uh, who you know have been taken by the by the Russians and. Uh, um, you know, those are war crimes, and Canada has been very, uh, uh, very influential in, in, in working um, towards that end. Do you get the feeling that the war in Ukraine is not getting the same attention as it once had since the war in Gaza started last fall? <laughs> well, that that's, uh, that's a loaded question, but... Um, um, you know, war is war everywhere. It's it's not only in Ukraine. Yes, uh, for sure. Um, and uh, the attention maybe has um, gone down a little bit, but uh, it, it, it you have to face the bottom line. Anywhere where where civilians are are being killed uh, for uh, you know political reasons. Uh, it, it needs to be uh, addressed mm -hmm. uh, by the world, actually, everywhere. You know, it, it's it's not right. Civilians pay the biggest price everywhere, you know. Absolutely.
How many people do you expect to come out on Saturday? I don't know. It's always, uh, we're hoping a good crowd, um, you know, to show the, to show support. Um, well, you're going to get some good weather. It's supposed to be sunny and like the high of one or minus oh, one. So that's going to be well, great. That, that'll make it even better. Yeah. Mary, I appreciate the time. Best of luck with the rally. And uh, we're certainly thinking of all our Ukrainian friends, both here and abroad. Yeah. Thank you so much. You're very supportive and uh, I appreciate it. Thanks, well, the Mary. community appreciates it. Absolutely. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Thanks. Mary Halatic is the vice president of the Ukrainian Canadian Congress Hamilton branch. Hop online to standwithukraine.org. There's uh, great resources there, um, stories from uh, websites and international reporters uh, covering the war. It is um, something that needs to end, that is for sure. But two years already come Saturday. That is, when I heard that the other day, I thought, wow, that, that time is just flying by. Uh, but that is a conflict that certainly needs to come to an end and a positive end as well. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. This is Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. And thanks for being here with me on your radio, your smart speaker at home in podcast form as well. The Canadian Comedy Hall of Fame Festival Week is, well, officially underway. As of tonight, some laughs are going to be had at Levity Comedy Club it includes a special tribute this week to Canada's legendary handyman, Red Green, on Friday at the Hamilton Convention Centre. And then the closing night gala, the induction ceremony itself, hosted by Canadian comedian Sean Majumder, will be held Saturday at First Ontario Concert Hall. Get your tickets online, www.canadiancomedyhall.com. And joining us now is the man himself. He's going to host the Big Bash on Saturday, Sean Majumder. Sean, good morning. How are you? Good morning and good morning, Hamilton. Do you get excited for stuff like this? Uh, you know what? There is no real stuff like this other than this, I will have to say, because the Canadian Comedy Hall of Fame, I mean, the fact that it's a festival all week long uh, was something that I only really found, really started finding out about um, not that long ago because I was originally hired. I was like, can you come and can you host the, the the gala night? And I thought, oh, it was a one-off. And I'm like, of course it should be a week. This, mm -hmm. this is like a big deal. And it should be more of a big deal in my mind in terms of celebrating the stories. And uh, one of the most important things that Canadians uh, have offered the rest of the world, funny people. I mean, we have it in droves. I know we have a natural resource. We have water and we have lumber. But you know what, man, like the funny people we have that have gone around the world and done incredible things um, is uh, is is pretty is breathtaking and absolutely worth celebrating. So and not I'm only so, that, so, so uh, stoked to be a part of this. Absolutely. I was going to say not only that, but it seems like I'm not sure what is in the water in this neck of the woods, but you're from Burlington. Martin yep. Short's a Hamilton guy. Jim Carrey from this part of the, you know, G Eugene Levy. All Wait, these people. I got to stop you. I got to stop you. I okay. get this all the time. Oh, no. Burlington, Newfoundland, <laughs> not Burlington, Ontario. <laughs> I get that all the time. I'm from a tidy town in Burlington, Newfoundland, population 350. And it is far more beautiful than Burlington, Ontario. <laughs> I mean, we're talking icebergs and whales and uh, trees. And no, no Swiss chalets, which is a downside. Oh, I will that's, say that. that's horrible. There's a million Swiss chalets in Burlington. 
No, I understand your point though, but I always get me. It's like sometimes people recognize me and they're like, Hey, Hey man, somebody's going to get a hurt. I'm like, I'm not Russell. Um, <laughs> He's Brampton. So anyway, but yeah. Close enough. But you're right. That neck of the woods is something in the water. Uh, yeah. There's some funny people, like you'd say, Eugene and Martin, uh, you know, Steve shot uh, the show there. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. What is it about Hamilton? That's so uh, breeding of funny. I don't know. It must be either the water or the air that we breathe. Um, yeah. Sometimes better yeah. than the other. But I, I'm going to say this uh, Friday night, you mentioned red green, Steve Smith, the guy himself, he's going to be showcased. He's got an iconic character. It has been around for decades. I mean, what when you think of comedy in this country, you know, some of the names that we mentioned, John Candy would be there as well. You know, Red yeah. Green slash Steve Smith has to be in the conversation. Oh, absolutely. As as goat, as one of the goats, yeah. for sure. Um, especially when you think about, you know, it's definitely a niche thing. Steve Smith has found uh, you know, with that character. Now, keep in mind, Red Green is a character that the that that was born of the hilarious mind of Steve Smith. So, you know, Red Green is not Steve Smith. Yeah. Steve Smith also has done all kinds of other comedy, um, you know, in in Canada. And I remember seeing him and his partner on, you know, singing songs and doing all these other things. Uh, Red Green, though, has obviously found a niche market, found that 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 audience that people loved. It was so relatable. It was so funny. His use of duct tape. I mean, dude, I, I wonder if duct tape the uh, I don't know who it is. 3M. I don't know who. <laughs> but whoever it is that makes duct tape better be paying for his entire <laughs> Uh, retirement because i mean you know they uh, I, I i now still use duct tape and immediately steve smith pops in my mind but yeah he's he's definitely a goat um and you know the previous there's been so many uh inductees already but this year with there's uh, i think it's some of the people that have been most influential on my career personally when i think about the cast of sctv i mean for me that was a that was a um and many, many Canadians, not only was it just hilarious to watch, but then when I started realizing I want to do that too, using that as an influence for how I write material, uh, the characters, the commitment of, of performance, it was game changing, completely game changing. Um, and, and it's pretty, pretty spectacular that I'm being a part of this particular induction ceremony. And how can a show like SCTV not be inspirational? You know, the the skits, the writing, the actors, you know, Catherine O'Hara, Joe Flaherty, Eugene Levy, Martin Short, uh, Andrea Martin, uh, Harold Ramis, like the list goes on and on of iconic yeah. comedians in this country, all on the same set. Like that is mind blowing. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, when I first started, I remember I auditioned for Second City, downtown Toronto. And it was over on, it was the original fire hall uh, where I went in. I remember I did this audition. It was for Tim Sims, who was, uh, you know, he, he sadly passed away years and years ago. And they had a Tim Sims theater dedicated to him because he was so brilliant. Hmm. But I remember I auditioned. But, but one of the things that happened was you end up in the, in, in the dressing room and you look at the signatures on the wall. And all my heroes were there. Wow. You know, Mike Myers was there. 
Um, you know, everybody who'd ever been in that room, J John Belushi uh, from, the, from the Chicago company all the way to the Toronto and everywhere in between. So all these brilliant performers had graced that room and it smelled funny. <laughs> <laughs> it smelled funny in there. Um, but, you know, not to forget these other people that are being inducted, too. We've got Joanna Downey in the creator yeah. category and Joe Bodelai. Joe Bodelai actually gave me my first stand-up comedy special oh, wow. uh, on CBC. It was a thing called Comics! Exclamation point. And, uh, and I've, uh, you know, I got to know him really well. He was so brilliant. We wouldn't have a comedy network if it wasn't for Joe Bodelai. And Joanna Downey was one of those people, you know, you may, she may not be a household name, but Joanna Downey is one of talking about the minutia of Canadian comedy and, you know, the inner way. She's kind of like the mitochondria of <laughs> comedy, the comedy uh, living being, because she was one of these people who had a room downtown Toronto and she would bring in, uh, they, they would have uh, uh, nights where any comic would come and they would work out new material. That is where comedy is born as, as on these stages. And she ran Spirits Comedy Club downtown, um, Bar and Grill. And it was it was like the place to be downtown. And and it, like I say, she was the powerhouse of uh, Toronto up and coming comics and 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 well-established comics who would pop in and do do sets, too. But it was because of her passion and love for for hosting and 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 making sure she supported these people uh, that we have some of the best comics we have now. Yeah, amazing impact for sure. we got another minute with Sean Majumder. He's going to be hosting Saturday's induction ceremony and closing gala of the uh, Canadian Comedy Hall of Fame. You can get your tickets, www.canadiancomedyhall.com. How cool is it to have a Hall of Fame? Is that something as a comic you're now striving for to say, hey, one day I want to be in the hall with a bunch of these other legends? No, I would never strive uh, to be in the <laughs> hall because that would mean I'd have to die. I think I'd have to die and I don't want to <laughs> die yet. I No, no, no. It's not something that I strive by any means, but I do think it's something that needs to happen. And, you know, I think we need to support this. I mean, our fearless leader, Tim Progosh, who started this and and is so passionate about it. It always takes one crazy person. Right. And he is that person. And God bless him for, for putting his blood, sweat, and tears into this. But eventually, we need to find a, a permanent home like the Hockey Hall of Fame um, and where, where people can grace the hall and go and look and watch and, and be a part of it. And uh, this, these are the steps along the way. And, and uh, you know, I think it's something that when, when I think – because think about it. This is immortalization of these people. Like yeah. I want to – when there's an excavation 10,000 years from now – uh, after the apocalypse, I want to make sure that there is this place where people go and be like, oh, my God, back in the day, uh, you know, Canadians worshipped this religion and these were the gods that they worshipped. You know, I, I want I want that to happen. And I think we will. And, and uh, you know, I'm really excited about being a part of this and 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 all week long. I can't believe it. Friday night I'm going to go to the show just because it's going to be a great show. Pat McKenna is hosting. He was actually. Uh, Harold on on you know red green and yeah. and it's going to be closed by the hilarious amazing Ron James so so please get your tickets and come out to this thing uh, it's going to be so much fun I think Wednesday there's a, the funniest person in Hamilton contest there's so many great things get down to Levity support it come out 
Hamilton, it doesn't get any better than this. Last one for you. 10,000 years from now, post-apocalypse, yep. when this yep. Canadian Comedy Hall of Fame is unearthed once again, and people are <laughs> laughing and smiling, and they yep. look at the nameplate, and it says, Sean Majumder, what is oh. going to be the artifact in the Hall of Fame that, that you will be associated with? <laughs> <laughs> probably, I don't know, probably a dirty sock. <laughs> I thought I you were going to say the hat for sure. I don't know why. Maybe a dirty sock. I'm going to leave it at that. I don't know why. Well, we'll see Ed the Sock might the complain about it. 20 years. We'll see Ed, what happens. Ed, Ed the Sock might complain about it, Sean, but I think you're on to something. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, uh, thanks for the time. Best of luck uh, this weekend. Have a uh, phenomenal time. Awesome, Hamilton. Come on out. I can't wait to see you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Everything is awesome when you are playing with Lego. Long considered a toy for children. Lego has certainly grown in popularity among adults, celebrities, athletes, influencers who are who are now among the brand's biggest fans and biggest promoters. Hey, look what I built. You're seeing it all over social media these days. In fact, back in 2023, Lego was searched nearly 30,000 times an hour on eBay. That's how popular this thing is, and people want to get their hands on it. Why is that? Why the resurgence? Stacey Roy is the first Canadian to win Lego Masters and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Stacey, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing so well. Thank you for having me today. I understand you're joining us from BC this morning. It's super early. I am. It's so early. Oh my gosh. But, I mean, it's always a good time to talk about Lego. Thank you so much for waking up extra early just for us. Uh, Lego, obviously not for kids anymore. Why the resurgence? Uh, I just I think it brings back all those wonderful memories from childhood and adults want to get back into it or they want to start building Lego with the next generation or their kids. And Lego is just making really cool sets now for everybody. There are so many different adult Lego sets. Like I try to tell people I'm like, it really, really is for everyone. <laughs> you are the first Canadian to win Lego Masters. How did that come about? Yeah, so I actually kind of like got back into Lego accidentally. I was I had a I had a set that I could start working on and I did and I decided to live stream it on Amazon and my community just really loved me live streaming it. So I kind of kept up with it and then someone else who's also Canadian, Nick, he reached out to me and he was like, "Have you heard of this TV show Lego Masters?" And I was like, "Well, of course, everybody has." He's like, "But would you want to go on it and go compete?" And of course, the answer was, yeah, let's let's give that a try. <laughs> so how did it go? Well, it went very well. I uh, <laughs> I am the first ever Canadian Lego master. And so how did that happen? Like, what did you have to build to be the champion? Yeah, so I was I was on the whole 13 episodes and each episode they would have a different challenge with different requirements and rules. And you just needed to make sure you, you survived long enough to get to that finale build where they allowed you 24 hours to build anything that you want. And so for my final build, I built a life-size bookshelf out of Lego filled with toys from my childhood and different things to represent every episode that had gotten me to where I was. Wow. How long did that take? 24 very intense hours for me and my Lego partner. I've never built Lego so quickly. Wow, that is tremendous. Um, you mentioned um, adult Lego sets. What are some of the examples that people can go out to their favorite store and get and then build? Yeah, so I'm I'm a, I'm a Star Wars fan. There's so much Star Wars Lego out there and pretty much for any theme that you like, whether that's Harry Potter, Star Wars, modular buildings, 
you know, cars. But one of the new Lego sets that I think is becoming really popular is their botanical line. So these are Lego flowers or birds of paradise, orchids, and they're absolutely stunning. And they're plants that don't need to be watered. So they're great for people like me <laughs> or other adults out there that cannot seem to keep plants alive. And I just think it's a really popular set that's just going to keep on growing. Stacey Roy is the first Canadian to win Lego Masters and our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. When it comes to children playing with Lego, because we know that is still happening, I always found when I was playing with it back in the day that it was, number one, incredibly fun, you know, building spaceships or vehicles or houses, whatever the case is. And little did I know at the time, it was really testing my STEM skills in terms of, you know, what pieces do I need? How big is this part going to be? And it, it, it is really a great educational toy. It really is. And I think we're just seeing people use it in more creative ways. Again, lots of STEM classes are finding a way to incorporate Lego into their teachings. And then you also have the whole Technic series as well, which incorporates a lot of movement into Lego building. So I just think there's a lot to learn from Lego, and it's also a great way to be creative at the same time. There's someone young or old listening to this right now and thinking, I can be the next Lego master. What's your advice to them? Go for it. I, I would say my advice would be to definitely apply because you never know what's going to happen and just start practicing. Try the little challenges from the show by yourself or with a friend or a family member because one, it's just a ton of fun to do that. And you'll just be so surprised with what you can come up with and create. Stacy, we really appreciate you waking up extra early with us here on GMH. Enjoy the day. And again, congratulations on being the first Canuck to win Lego Masters. <laughs> Thank you so much. I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks, you too. That's Stacy Roy, the first ever Canadian to win Lego Masters and clearly well-deserving building a, book a bookcase with all her childhood toys along with it. Wow. If you can build Lego for 24 hours and do something like that, you are more than deserving of that award. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you you rate and review.